Hello everyone and welcome to this evening's meeting of the Aristotelian Society. It's my great pleasure to introduce our speaker this evening, um, Dr. Tom Stern. Tom's a lecturer in philosophy at University College London, where he's also the academic director of the European Social and Political Studies Programme. His research interests include Nietzsche and aesthetics. He's written a number of articles exploring various candidates for a positive ethics in Nietzsche's philosophy. And he's the author of a forthcoming book, Philosophy and Theatre, due to be published by Routledge this year. The title of Tom's talk this evening is Nietzsche, Amor Fati, and the Gay Science. Thanks very much for the introduction. Um, so I want to begin by, of course, thanking the Aristotelian Society for the invitation and uh, thanking all of you for braving the inclement weather and making it here today. Um, I think it's customary to begin a talk like this uh, by saying how pleased I am to be here. Um, and of course I am pleased to be here, but I'm particularly pleased, and maybe the emphasis is slightly different, because uh, two days ago I found myself stuck at the airport in Portugal after a conference on a flight that was cancelled, having been told that all the flights between then and now were booked up or cancelled, uh, or in the case of my flight, both. Um, <laughs> and that I wasn't going to be able to land until about an hour before now. Uh, I managed to get here a little bit earlier. But anyway, when I say I'm pleased to be here, what I really mean is I'm pleased to be here um, and uh, not to have to ask about Skyping it in from the airport. Uh, now, the experience, if any of you have had the experience of being stuck on an aeroplane or stuck at an airport, um, but the experience of it was quite a good opportunity to prepare myself for some elements of today's talk. Um, because as I got chatting with some of my fellow passengers, it didn't surprise me, uh, and I promise it wasn't me that made this happen, but it, it didn't surprise me that some of the talk, when it wasn't about how awful the airline is, um, turned to things like religion and philosophy. And one of the passengers, one of my fellow passengers, uh, quoted what I think is basically known as the serenity prayer. It's the Reinhold Niebuhr prayer, which goes, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, and courage to change the things I can, and wisdom to know the difference. Um, apt, as always, though philosophers will tell you that it's the third bit, it's the knowing the difference, that proves to be particularly difficult. Now, uh, the Niebuhr prayer uh, is rather nice too because it reflects, uh, well, it reflects two things. One is the need to think about things when we are in frustrating scenarios, and, and also, I suppose, the difficulty of knowing what to do in relation to them. And in a sense, that's how Nietzsche's Amor Fati has been understood. That is, first of all, as a kind of folksy-type wisdom, right? Amor Fati, love your fate. Learn to love what it is that fate gives you, Amor Fati. So that's the first reason, I suppose, why I think it's something that's nice to bring to philosophical discussion. After all, if it is this kind of folksy, kind of nice, everyday saying that gets people through horrible experiences like airports, then maybe it's the kind of thing that it's nice to stand up to some kind of philosophical scrutiny. And it could be that what Nietzsche is offering in Amor Fati is that, Right? I'm going to suggest it isn't, but it could be that it is. The second reason is slightly more grounded in the Nietzsche scholarship or in the literature. Um, 
Generally speaking, as I'm sure many of you know, when we think about Nietzsche, when scholars have written about Nietzsche, they've tended to agree, more or less, on what it is that he doesn't like. We're relatively secure when we describe what it is that Nietzsche doesn't like about the world and how it works, as he sees it. Uh, where it gets harder, I would say, is trying to spell out what he does like, right? just broadly, as broadly as possible put, what is his positive ethics. Right? He doesn't seem to have one. He seems to have a series of things that he tries out, right? <laughs> terms associated with him, which he'll talk about in one place very briefly, and then not really expand upon in other places, maybe refer to once or twice, scattered throughout his books, that sort of thing. And I still think that the challenge for Nietzsche scholars is to try to explain what it is that he, well, what he wants us to do, broadly put, or how he wants us to respond, or what he thinks the good is, or something like that, like whatever you want to, whatever you want to say about that. Now, my approach today, and as in the past, is going to be to look at where he introduces these concepts in their most sort of extensive way. So where it is that he says the most about these labels or terms. I'm thinking, of course, about things like, I don't know, the will to power, like the ubermensch, like the eternal recurrence, freedom, in this case, Yang Fati. So I'm going to look at the passage where he says the most about it. But I'm not just going to look at the passage where he says the most about it in an isolated way. What I'm going to do instead is look at the context, by which I really mean the text that comes along with it, which is in this case the gay science. My suggestion here, as elsewhere when I've looked at other concepts like this, is that if you look at the concept and the text that goes along with it, you can see what he's doing as part of a bigger project, the project that it's situated in. And then you can learn to see it in a slightly different way, and in my view you can correct some of the ways of reading which tend to ignore the surrounding passages. So those are the two things, more or less, that I want to do. Explore this as an optional kind of folk, everyday philosophical notion, but also look at it in a more structured and a more careful way in relation to the text in which it appears. Now, in the myriad versions of this paper, which I tried out, normally not getting much past the title, but when I thought about the kind of paper that I wanted to deliver at the Aristotelian Society, when I settled on this as a topic, my plan was to talk about something rather different. Like my, my, I, was, I still wanted to answer those first two notions, right? the, the folksy wisdom element and the Nietzsche in context sort of scholarly element. I still wanted to do that, um, but I had a more particular idea about what I wanted to say. Right? What I wanted to do was basically slam both. That was my plan. Right? I just wanted to kill off both of them. I wanted to say, this is a terrible piece of folk wisdom, I mean, as loving your face is probably one of the worst ideas I thought I'd ever heard of. But not just that. I mean, when you look at it in Nietzsche's context, if you look at it with the gay science, if you think about what he's doing in the gay science with this concept, it's completely inconsistent with everything else he's trying to do. I mean, he doesn't anywhere else say you should love your fate. He says all sorts of other things which obviously contradict that notion. So my original talk was going to be called something like, let's never talk about Amor Fati ever again. And then I was going to do those two bits. And then I was going to hope, if the talk was successful, that no one ever talked about it ever. And I would consider every single reference to Amor Fati that ever came up after that to be a personal slight um, on my abilities as a philosopher. That was the plan. Now, that paper, when I started to write it, 
turned into this paper. And that paper remains in a kind of vestigial form as the first half of today's talk. So for the first half of today's talk, I want to explain why that view of Amor Fati, I'm going to just call it for ease, right, the conventional view, um, that's just the idea that Amor Fati is love whatever happens to have happened to you. Just love your fate, where fate is understood as your events, the events that take place in your life. Right? That I'm going to call just broad umbrella term, the, the conventional reading. And I do still think those things about it. I do still think it's a very silly idea as a piece of folk wisdom. The serenity prayer has lots more going for it, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and I do still think that it's inconsistent with what Nietzsche says in the gay science. And I'll explain both of those in the first part of the paper. But as I was trying to explain why I thought that was, I came across what might be an alternative reading, a reading which might make this make sense, which might ground it in Nietzsche's project in the book in which it appears, and might therefore have more to say for itself. I won't, of course, be saying that this is perfect, and you'll see from the handout that at the end I'll give some possible problems with this, but at least it's a starter. At least it's not the kind of thing we should ignore. So, that's that. Uh, let's look, first of all, then, at the trouble with Amor Fati as a kind of folky piece of wisdom. And what's wrong with loving your fate? Well, the first problem is that we can't really choose what we love. It seems simple enough, but it's also true. Um, love doesn't really seem to work like that. Uh, every time I give this paper, I'm reminded how little I like standing up in front of strangers talking about love, by the way. Uh, that never goes away. Um, but I'm just going to direct all the awkwardness at the show and just pretend that isn't happening. Um, so, uh, think about, for example, the Greeks who viewed Eros. That, of course, that's one kind of love, but it's one that Nietzsche talks about frequently as a kind of mania. Right? Don't, don't, don't be sidetracked by Plato. Most of the Greeks thought that Eros was something that made you mad. Or think about Aphrodite and what Aphrodite does to various people. It's not a good thing, it's not a reasonable thing, and it's not necessarily something that you can choose. Now, the second <coughs> thing you might want to say is that even if you could choose, or even if love was something you could choose to do, I'm not saying, by the way, that it, you're completely passive in this regard, but, but it's not something you have total control over. But if it were something you had total control over, we might not think that it was in some sense as valuable, or we might think that it was a rather different kind of thing, if one could just flick a switch. Right? Um, and the third thing, and this is the most important thing, and it hasn't escaped the attention even of those trying to defend the traditional reading, the third thing is, there are plenty of things about our fates which, even if we could choose to love, and even if choosing to love didn't disrupt what love was, as far as we thought, there are plenty of things we just shouldn't choose to. We just shouldn't. Right? Fate is not lovable, not for lots of people, perhaps not for anyone. That's particularly true if you think that the fate of the individual is tied up with the fate of all individuals, something which, by the way, Nietzsche definitely does think, but we'll come to that later on in the talk. So if we're talking about the universal fate, not just the individual's fate, right, then loving all of fate means loving not only various disgusting atrocities, but as some Nietzsche commentators have pointed out, it means loving what's in the minds of those people carrying out those atrocities, and so on and so forth. That just seems like something we shouldn't even want to do, even if we thought we could. Um, and in the light of this comment about historical atrocities, it doesn't seem surprising to me that one of the first philosophers to object in this way 
following what I'm calling the traditional reading, was Adorno, writing short, during and shortly after the Second World War, who notes that Amor Fati seems to him just like the pathetic love of the captive for the bars of his cage. Right? It's, just someone, it's just like somebody who's locked up in a cage, but who's learned to convince themselves that they love the bars of the cage. And as Adorno says, quite rightly, it seems to me, there doesn't seem to be any particular good reading from Nietzsche or anywhere else of this, which would suggest why we should prefer the captive who loves the bars of the cage to, say, the next-door captive who thinks that he's not in a cage at all, who thinks that he's on a desert or thinks that he's a king or thinks that all the prison wards are servants. The wishful thinker, in other words. I mean, Amor Fati is the person who loves what he believes to be true and the wishful thinker is the person who um, believes to be true that which he wishes. And those two captives, I mean, choosing between them doesn't really seem to matter much to us. A final way of thinking about that, I suppose, is to think about what we call Stockholm Syndrome. Now, Stockholm Syndrome is when captors, captives fall in love with their captors. Apparently, there's some debate about whether it's a real syndrome or not. But the point is, when we thought it was a real syndrome... We called, it, we called it a syndrome, right? We, we called it something that should be treated. We didn't look at these people who fell in love with their captors and affirm their amazing achievement in loving their fates. We thought they were sick. Right? That, that's a worry for the traditional view. So those three things make me think that I shouldn't go around encouraging my fellow passengers, let's say, to love their fates. It doesn't look like the kind of thing that we should be doing. Um, but what about Nietzsche? What about what Nietzsche says? What I'm going to do is look at the passage in which Nietzsche presents Amor Fati as clearly and as obviously as possible, right? which, is very, which is very definitely this passage in The Gay Science that I printed on your handout. I'll read it out. As I say, anything in bold is something that I've highlighted, and anything in italics is Nietzsche. Um, so here we go. For the new year, that's the title. I'm still alive. I still think... I must be alive because I still have to think. Sum ergo cogito, cogito ergo sum. Today everyone allows himself to express his dearest wish and thoughts. So I too want to say what I wish for myself today and what thought first crossed my heart, what thought shall be the reason, warrant and sweetness of the rest of my life. So you can see why people think this might be a clue for the positive ethics. Right? This is what I want to be the reason for the rest of my life. This is... This is hopeful stuff. I want to learn more and more how to see what is necessary in things as what is beautiful in them. Thus, I will be one of those who makes things beautiful. Amor Fati, let that be my love from now on. I do not want to wage war against ugliness. I do not even want to accuse the accusers. Let looking away be my only negation. And all in all, and on the whole, someday I want only to be a yes-sayer, or yay-sayer, if you want to be a little more poetic about it. I always feel nervous, by the way, about reading out long passages of Nietzsche. Ever since um, I heard someone say, a philosopher say, that when he went to talks on Nietzsche, he always felt like he was in a church that he'd accidentally walked into, <laughs> just he wasn't really part of the congregation. Um, and so there's a sort of risk, especially with a lectern, and you're sort of reading out these, this reading, it makes me... There's a slight aisle as well. I'm just saying, I'm, what I'm saying is I'm going, to be, I'm going to be critical about this, right? I'm not just telling you to, to, to enjoy it. So, so bearing in mind the idea that people are really saying, we really have interpreted this as, please just love your fates. Let's look at what Nietzsche says about 
the meaty concepts that show up in this passage, right? This passage is not just Amal Fati. If you look through the things I've highlighted, you'll see um, necessity, you'll see beauty, you'll see love, you'll see thinking, you'll see being. Now, those are all subjects of enormous amounts of philosophical labor, right? I don't, you don't need me to tell you that, but you, you may need me to tell you that Nietzsche thinks about them a lot too, and it just makes sense to think about what he says about them, and particularly to think about what he says about them in this book. Right? That's, the thing that, that's the thing I'm doing which I don't think people have done, and I don't... I, well, I've got lots of theories about why, but I'm not going to give them to you now. But, I mean, why is it that people don't look at these concepts, things like beauty and necessity and thinking and being, and why don't they look at what he says about them in the book? Well, the answer is you get a kind of strange result. So, this is what he says, and what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through them, I'm going to look at love, I'm going to look at necessity, I'm going to look at beauty, and then I'm going to sum up, and that's the first part of the paper as discussed. So the biggest treatment of love we find in the gay science is a passage which is called One Must Learn to Love. Um, the description, incidentally, is initially a description of music. Like he's asking you to think about how it is that you come to love a piece of music. So it begins with complete unfamiliarity, sort of, and perhaps curiosity, and then as it develops, you get curious, you get kind of used to the melody, you see past the melody, you hear other things, the harmonies, you see certain kinds of effects or certain... And then, and then, as he says, eventually, you, after you get accustomed to it, you get habituated, and then you start to need it. And then you want that thing and that thing alone more than anything else in the world. And you think, if you can't, you know, I remember a friend of mine going on holiday, and this she wanted the song on her, she wanted this song on her iPod, and she and she was in a panic about how the song wasn't downloading. And how can I last the next three days without being able to listen to it? I'm not going to shame her by naming who she is or the song, most importantly. But, uh, but you, maybe you can think of an equivalent experience, that sort of thing. Anyway, he starts with music. But what he says about it is, this is how, he says quite explicitly, this is how, this is always how we love. Like that, that's how always, that's the important thing for us. Like that's always how we come to love things. And that might not be true, but it's what he says. So we might then think it's acceptable to apply that, we always learn to love like this, to fate. The trouble is that when we do, we're reminded of what I've called the problem of unlo unlovable fate. I mean, fate just isn't, just no matter how much you accustom yourself to certain things, you do not start to need them. And again, think about events perhaps from your own life, but also if you're thinking about this in a broad spectre, human, human historical events. There are some things which are not going to, as Nietzsche put it, gradually cast off their veils and present themselves as new and indescribable beauties. Right? That there are some things that don't do that. If we look elsewhere at what Nietzsche says about love in the gay science, we find two more elements which also don't help us at all. Uh, the first one is a very familiar idea, I think, from various kinds of literature, certainly. That to love something really means doing something else down. Uh, I mean, I suppose, you know, when the person, when my friend who needs the song before she goes away, there's some sense that she's doing a disservice to other songs. I know it sounds odd, but you sort of see what I mean. If you love one person, maybe it involves having a slightly false notion of their value, like comparatively. You need something else to not love, is the thought, to get this whole thing going. But again, I, I, oh well... That seems plausible to me, but even if it isn't plausible, he says it, and I'm, what I'm trying to do is connect that up to his discussion of loving fate. So as he says, the rest of the world appears indifferent, pale, and worthless. 
The second thing which is even more problematic is that love is something that distorts as far as Nietzsche is concerned. He's talking here about loving a person primarily, so maybe that shouldn't be carried over, but it seems worth pointing out nonetheless. He does talk about love in general as well. What he says is, the human being under the skin is an abomination and unthinkable to all lovers. The idea is that when you love someone, it's pretty difficult to think about certain physiological features of them. It's quite nice to stop at their skin, right? Those of you familiar with Swift's poem, uh, The Lady's Dressing Room, may know this all too well. In Swift's poem, the lover goes to his beloved's, Celia's dressing room, and Celia has left the dressing room, and he goes to the dressing room, and he finds all the things she's left behind, having made up, made herself up. Right? So, so there's all the kind of filth that she smeared off herself and on herself to get ready and look beautiful. There's the clothing, there's everything else. And finally, in a very clear way, there's evidence of Celia uh, beneath the skin. I'm going to quote this because it's wonderful. Thus, finishing his grand survey, disgusted Strephon stole away. Strephon is the lover, right? Repeating in his amorous fits, Oh, Celia, Celia, Celia shits. <laughs> the human being under the skin is an abomination to all lovers. Right? It's not that common that Nietzsche is outdone in terms of expression. <laughs> Thought I would offer it to you. So look, both of these things, right, the idea that love means ignoring something and the idea that love means distorting something don't look good for the love of fate. Right? Not only are we supposed to love something that's unlovable, if we're supposed to love fate, right, then we're supposed to ignore bits of it. Um, because love means ignoring some of it, but fate looks quite total to me, at least in principle, and I'll argue that Nietzsche certainly thinks that. Um, and also we're supposed to distort it, which doesn't sound either like what Nietzsche says when he talks about learning what is necessary in things. Learning what is necessary in things doesn't initially sound compatible with being confused or misconceiving what's going on. And after all, think about what's necessary for Celia, right? And if, Nietzsche, if, if, if the lover is supposed to love what is necessary in Celia, he's going to have to love the human being under the skin. Let's turn then from love to necessity. Um, at this point, it's worth asking ourselves the question I've alluded to in the past, which is, are we talking about my fate, Amor Fati, loving my fate, or is it that I'm supposed to love everybody's fate? Now, as I've said, in some places, Nietzsche is extremely clear about this, right? It, he says in Twilight of the Idols, for example, you absolutely cannot isolate one person's fate from anybody else's because they're all tied up together. Right? I mean, I wouldn't have the life I had if all sorts of other things were different. So to ask me to have a different life is to ask everyone to have a different life. That's what he says elsewhere, right? And that's something that people who want to appeal to this conventional notion of amor fati, but think it's easier to ask me to love my own life, have to deal with in Nietzsche's work, and don't always. That's why I want to mention it in passing. But restricting ourselves to the gay science, and within the project that Nietzsche's carrying out there, this is the place where he's talking about the death of God. But this is one of the places where the death of God comes up. You'll remember the Madman passage, and where he says God is dead. That's in the gay science. And what Nietzsche's project there as he puts it out, is to kind of de-deify the world. This is not, the point is, it's not just, I mean, this is what everybody, this is, you know, Nietzsche, um, you get rid of God, it's fine, but being an atheist in itself isn't enough. Our whole ways of thinking about things and our whole moral outlooks are 
sort of riddled with, are laced with God. And getting rid of God doesn't mean getting rid of all our cultural um, sort of associations and so on. One of our cultural associations with God, he doesn't say why, by the way, and I can speculate, but he doesn't really say, is the contrast between some facts about the world being necessary and some facts about the world being contingent. Uh, my guess is what he thinks is something like this. Necessity and contingency are primarily notions which are related to agency, he thinks. I think this is, this is my reconstruction, but it doesn't really matter. Um, so in other words, what I think he thinks is when you think about an event and you think about whether that event, non-human event, was necessary or contingent, what you're really thinking of is did God need that to happen or was that something that God left to itself? Right? If you think about Zeus, what Zeus does is he nods his head about certain events that are coming, but he doesn't say how they're going to come and he doesn't say when. He just says, yeah, that's going to happen. Right? So that's necessary and then everything else is contingent. I, and I think what Nietzsche thinks is that when you get rid of the gods, you see everything as necessary. In any case, what he says is everything is necessary. There are only necessities. So it's not a question in loving your fate of learning what the necessary bits are, loving them and ignoring the rest. There's no room for that in this book. There are only necessities. All right. And finally, beauty. Uh, you'll see from the passage, by the way, that beauty comes up when Nietzsche talks about wanting to be one of those who makes things beautiful. Now, I've seen lots of discussions of amorphasia and its relation to beauty, but rarely, if ever, have I seen scholars refer <coughs> to the section in the same book, which begins with the question, what means do we have for making things beautiful? Like, you would think that would be a start. And it isn't, always. So let's look at that now. The context is what, what he calls what we should learn from the artists. And artists are paradigmatically those who make things beautiful. So when Nietzsche says, I want to be one of those who make things beautiful, by his own suggestion, he's primarily talking about artists. Um, and what are the artistic methods? Well, what you'll see from the list I'm about to read out is that when Nietzsche talks about an artist, what he primarily seems to have in mind is the kind of person who would take, in the modern terms, right, would be the kind of person who takes photographs for an advertising agency. I mean, that, that's, what, that's what the model is, right? It's you've got something, an object, you've got an audience, and you're the intermediary that makes them think this object is great. Now, that may or may not be a good description of what artists do in general or in this case, but you'll see why I say that from the list, right? Here are the artistic methods. To distance oneself from things until there is much in them that one no longer sees, and much that the eye must add in order to see them at all. Or to see things around a corner, and as if they were cut out and extracted from their context. Or to place them so that each partially distorts the viewing one has of the others, and allows only perspectival glimpses. Or to look at them through coloured glass, or in the light of the sunset. Or to give them a surface and skin that is not fully transparent, we might recall the human being under the skin in his discussion of how making things beautiful is about giving them a skin that is not fully transparent. And I would also ask you to draw your attention to things that you add, the eye must add in order to see them at all. Right? So basically, Nietzsche's concluding remark from this, remember this is called what we should learn from the artists, it's not just what artists do, it's what we should learn from them. The conclusion is that we should do this not just with art, but with our own lives. 
this is what we should do with our own lives. We should be taking that sort of view or that sort of approach to our own lives. Now, I've mentioned some of the problems associated with the extra notions of love, but what I want to do now is mention some of the further complications from looking at the notions of necessity and beauty, complications for what I'm calling this traditional reading. We've seen that loving requires recognising the beauty in things, right? The, the music listener who listens to the music and then the music reveals itself as beautiful. It, it is a beautiful thing and it reveals itself as such, but fate isn't beautiful. Loving requires preferring one thing to another. It's a preference. It's not something that you can do with one thing in isolation. It's that you love this and not that. But if you're supposed to love a totality, fate, there's going to be no other, or it's going to look like there's going to be no other. Thirdly, loving requires ignorance, as we've seen about certain features of the beloved. That was Celia. But loving fate means loving what's necessary. He says, I want to learn what's necessary in things before he talks about Amalfati. Finally, as regards beauty, we might notice that Amalfati requires making things beautiful, but making things beautiful, as we've seen, means projecting, distorting, and falsifying. Right? There is no advertising standards agency for artists, sadly. Um, so distorting, right? But, lo but, but lovers of fate, at least on the traditional reading, are supposed to love fate. Otherwise, I'd be telling my fellow passengers, you've got to love your fate, but by the way, your fate doesn't really involve being trapped on this stupid plane. But it does, right? And, and on a traditional reading, lovers of fate are meant to love their fates. They're not meant to love some distortion or falsification. So that bit of my talk was, as I say, the vestigial leftover bit of the first talk, that we should never talk about this ever again uh, talk. And... That one, as I say, still seems to me to remain. Um, when we want to talk about Amalfati, if it's meant to be a serious reading of what Nietzsche says about it and the context and the concepts which go along with it, we're not onto a winner here, either as regards a piece of wisdom or as a regards to what Nietzsche says in his book. It just doesn't look like it works. But one or two further elements of the gay science might suggest that we revisit each of these terms, right? necessity, love, beauty, and to revise them with some of the other bits of the gay science in mind. And if we do, all I'm suggesting is there may be a chink of light. And that's what I want to do now. So, I want to begin with necessity. So far, what I've talked about in relation to necessity up to now, as many people do when they talk about Amalfati, is necessary things in general about people's lives. I mean, I'm playing rather fast and loose with the notion of necessity, but Nietzsche doesn't give us much, and neither do many of the commentators. So what's necessary about your life? Right? But it might be that when Nietzsche talks about loving what is necessary in things, he has one particular kind of necessity in mind. And you get a sense of what that might be by looking at the things he's talking about in the gay science. Because a frequently repeated, in fact, probably the most frequently repeated claim in the whole of that book is about one particular thing that human beings need to do if they are to survive. And the particular thing that human beings need to do if they are to survive, Nietzsche thinks, is get a lot of things wrong, right? is, is be in error in some general way. Right? He talks about error being something that's just a feature of our cognition, 
It's just a thing about what it is to be human, that you get stuff wrong. Now in this book, in other places this isn't quite the case, but I want to stick to this book. In this book, he doesn't say very much about why that is. He gives us a couple of ideas. So here are some speculative thoughts about why it is that it might be the case that we're in error. Though remember that the most important thing is that we are, and that it bothers him. The first thought seems to be an evolutionary one, one which Nietzsche comes back to quite frequently. The thought is something like this. As far as he's concerned, he's got, he's got some sense of how evolution works that's not as popularly understood as it is now, but as far as he's concerned, what evolutionary theory tells us is that human beings have the kinds of cognition that they have because it's helped them to survive, and obviously it might sometimes be in your interests to perceive the world and understand it correctly, like sometimes that's going to be a good evolutionary strategy, sometimes it's going to be a bad one. Right? Famously, for some animals, Nietzsche thinks including us, jumping to conclusions is an extremely good way of surviving, and sticking around trying to figure things out is an extremely bad way of surviving. So in Nietzsche's terms, or one of the examples he uses, right, if you find out that one thing is poisonous, one object is poisonous, one berry, um, thinking that all berries of that colour are poisonous might be a good false <coughs> conclusion. It might also be a bad false conclusion because you might starve next to a bush of strawberries or something. But it basically is going to be sometimes useful to jump to false conclusions, and that's something that he seems to think. On a metaphysical level, it might also be a part of Nietzsche's infinite Schopenhauerian <coughs> influence. In other words, Schopenhauer thinks that conceptual thinking is just error. It, it's a kind of abstracting and being wrong. So Schopenhauer talks about concepts as being like the stones in a mosaic compared to the real thing. Conceptual thinking is kind of blunt, stone-like thinking. You can make a picture of the world using concepts, but it's always going to distort what the world is actually like. Now, either of these things could be running behind Nietzsche's view that we're in error. What's important today is that he thinks we are, and he thinks it's a problem. Moving on to a re revision of love with this erroneous stuff in mind, um, we might remember Nietzsche's remarks in Gay Science about some people he calls the lovers of reality. Now, according to the traditional view of Amor Fati, where it's loving what happens to you, you might expect the lovers of reality to be good news, right? but they aren't. Um, he's going to criticise them. He's going to criticise them because he thinks that they are people... He, what he means by the lovers of reality are people who take life at face value. People who think, and he uses an example, again, I think this is probably a Schopenhauerian example, it doesn't matter. Um, he uses the example of people who think that clouds are as they look. I, I think what he probably means there is that they probably think, you think they're fluffy. It's the person who looks at the world and thinks, no, these are fluffy things, big fluffy things in the sky. But of course they're not. Um, at least, I hope they're not. I don't think they are. Um, <laughs> I think they're probably not. It'd be kind of embarrassing if they were. Anyway, let's assume they're not. So, um, lovers of reality take that attitude generally to their lives. So they think that what's happened to them is what's really happened. What they think has happened is what's really happened. They don't stop to reassess what's going on. In one of his discussions of people getting things wrong, which come up frequently again and again in the gay science, he says, you're liable to get confused about what's necessary if you just take life at face value. Now, remember, in the Amalfati passage, he wants to be one of those who sees what is necessary in things and loves them and finds them beautiful. But seeing what is necessary in things means being the kind of person who doesn't just take things at face value. That's, that's the point. 
today. So whatever it is that you think has happened to you, it will have been conditioned by various kinds of erroneous ways of seeing the world. Again, with his notion of error in mind, it's helpful to turn back to the notion of beauty. Right? Because when we think back to what the artist was doing, we might remember that what the artist was doing was basically deliberately erring. And that was those, the things that the artist was doing was presenting the world in a way that was deliberately erroneous. But in a passage which Nietzsche calls our ultimate gratitude to art. Remember the passage about the artist is about what we're supposed to learn from the artist. And this is our ultimate gratitude to art, is that art is a kind of error that we like. We like it, and we kind of know it's an error. We might not know how. So we might not know how the photographer has manipulated her material to present us with this great uh, picture. But we probably know that in art, there is a certain amount of manipulation in the manner I've described, and yet we still find these things wonderful. Right? And the point is, um, well, I'll read Nietzsche rather than summarising Nietzsche. Had we not approved of the arts and invented this type of cult of the untrue, the insight into general untruth and mendacity that is now given to us by science, the insight into the delusion and error this is a condition of cognitive and sensate existence. That's the things I've been talking about, right? This insight would be utterly unbearable. So this is what art is doing for Nietzsche at this point in this book, right? It's, we're in error, we just realise that human beings are fundamentally wrong about how they think about the world, and that we're set up that way. But look, there's this kind of deliberate error-making stuff that we do, and we approve of this, we think it's wonderful, we think the people who do this are geniuses. Right. Error isn't all that bad. That's the role of art. Um, and he puts this rather nicely. Right? With artistic errors, quote, it is no longer eternal imperfection that we carry across the river of becoming. We feel then that we are carrying a goddess. So we've turned what is an imperfection into a kind of goddess. Goddess of art. And the rest of this passage explores why art is necessary along these lines. But the basic point <coughs> I'm trying to make is this. I mean, if you put all of these things together, if you remind yourself that we're making mistakes all the time, he thinks, we're just constantly confused about how the world works. If you remember that what artists do is make things beautiful, if you remember that Nietzsche wants to be the kind of person who finds out what's necessary in things and makes them beautiful, what I'm suggesting as a kind of alternative reading of this is that animal fati is about loving that particular necessity, i.e. that we get things wrong, and making that particular necessity beautiful, i.e. a kind of double distortion. The second one being deliberate version of the first one, right? We all distort, now let's take an artistic attitude towards those distortions. Um, and the double, so the double distortion will be something that, like art, we can appreciate and enjoy, rather than being disgusted by. That's, that's a suggestion. Um, so, in other words, though it's a condition for our existence that we are bound up in error, it may be a condition of the existence of those Nietzsche admires that they recognise this, right? they take the insights from science, that they make it beautiful, that is, distort it, falsify it, do all the things the artist does to it, and that furthermore they recognise both of those conditions, both the erroneousness and the distorting that they've done on that erroneousness. 
and find a way to come to terms with it. And to link this back to the book from which it comes from, I want to suggest the person who did that successfully might be an example of what Nietzsche is calling a kind of gay science, right? a joyful attitude towards scientific work. Now, as it happens, though there's plenty of problems with it, this reading works rather nicely in relation to some of the problems I suggested earlier with what I call the traditional reading. After all, we no longer need to be concerned with the idea that some things about our fates are just horrible. That's because Nietzsche's not necessarily asking us to love all of those things. He's asking us to love one particular thing, which is the erroneous way we stand towards the world. It's not just any one particular thing, though. It's a prior thing. I mean, what we're supposed to do before we understand what the world is like is come to terms with our error in it. And we're supposed to look at our errors before we go out into the world and think about it. So the problem of unlovable fate is not exactly solved. It's just put to one side. That's not really what this is about. It's not about loving everything that's happened to us. Against the other objections, there's no claim that what happened to us is lovable, and it's accepted that it's very hard to bear. What's more, we don't have to love everything. That's not what he's talking about. So that deals with some of the other problems which assume that we need to love everything. In fact, we can distort and we can ignore. That's what we're supposed to be doing. So no longer do we find this problem associated with ignorance and associated with distortion. Finally, against my fourth complaint or concern, um, loving our fate is just distorting, so there's no problem with that either. Right? The, that problem was, well, making things beautiful sounds like it's distorting things, but we're supposed to love things as they actually are. Well, not according to this reading. We're not supposed to love things as they actually are. We're supposed to distort them and have a distorting attitude towards them. Well, so far you might think, so good. Um, but I want to end by looking at some of the problems with this. It's much better in terms of what Nietzsche is saying in his book. Right? It fits with what he's doing, and that speaks in its favour. And as it happens, it's not a useless piece of folk wisdom, which also speaks in its favour. Um, but that doesn't mean it's great. Uh, I'll mention some of these things. I'll mention four concerns before, um, I'll, before I draw to a close. Um, the first concern, you might think, is exegetical. Right? For reasons of space, but those of you who've read lots of Nietzsche will know about this, I haven't talked about uh, his conception of the eternal recurrence. And it, it, that shows up also in the fourth book of the Gay Science, and the eternal recurrence and the Amalfati bookend that fourth section, the fourth passage. It begins with the eternal recurrence. It begins with Amalfati and it ends with the eternal recurrence. Um, I can't go into that now. All I would mention is, if you think that the eternal recurrence just is Amalfati <coughs> on the traditional reading, then you run into all the problems I've talked about. So there's good reason to think that it isn't like that at least. But moving on from the exegetical points, a number of philosophical concerns dog this new view. Um, first of all, and most prominently, and this is just, it seems to me, a problem for all sorts of bits of Nietzsche, and it's no surprising it rears its ugly head here, we have the concern about truth, or rather about access to truth. After all, Nietzsche is using scientific knowledge of a kind, scientific in the broad German sense, at least, um, to tell us that we are always in error. So one might be justified in asking 
about the epistemic status of the scientists in this story, right? Are the scientists in this story given some kind of privileged method? Are they given some privileged access to the truth? How is it that they get to tell us things that are true, whereas everybody else has is sort of bathing in error, as it were? Now, either Nietzsche's got to say that the scientists are also bathing in error, or he's got to say that there are some kinds of things that are true, or that we can know. And actually, during the course of his work, he tries out both of those options. If you remember Human All Too Human, that's the one where he says, no, scientists, they can absolutely 100% get to the truth. But that is explicitly not the position he takes in gay science, and he's clear to distance himself from that view. One assumes he doesn't want to say that. On the other hand, he doesn't probably want to say that it, the scientist's stuff is just a guess. Like, otherwise, where is his panic coming from about how we're always all in error? I mean, he's got to... Anyway, so there seems to be some kind of imbalance there. And I don't think there's room within Nietzsche's ideas to solve that problem. I just think that's something he changes his mind about. And all we can do is follow the change. But a further and more important in relation to this talk, dimension along which I think this is problematic, um, is when we think back to our serenity prayer, when we think back to uh, the notion of knowing the difference between the things we're supposed to be courageous about and the things that we're supposed to sit back and accept. For those interested in the history of philosophy, the serenity prayer, though it's couched in Christian terms, can't help but seem quite stoic, right? Because of all the philosophers, the philosophers who spent the most time desperately trying to carve out a very clear line between things you can change and have control over and things that you absolutely can't change and have no control over, it's probably the Stoics. Um, for Epictetus, who is probably the major figure in that respect, um, it's extremely important to work out what it is that you can control and what it is that you can't. Now, Epictetus' method of doing that, which is, uh, has a lot to be said for it in some regards, uh, is to imagine that his interlocutor is being tortured. Right? This is something we've probably all done one way or another, but it's something that Epictetus does with a particular philosophical goal. The idea being, uh, what are the sorts of things about a person that torture couldn't take away? In his example, you can be removed of your wealth, of course, you can be removed of your health, all the things that you're proud of, all your material possessions. But what you can't be removed of are your true justified beliefs, your knowledge, basically, but the things you hold to be true. Right? So I can torture you into saying that 2 plus 2 is 5, but I can't torture you into believing it. The conclusion of this is important for the Stoics, right? and it's the Stoics that people often look to to try to understand Amal Fati. But the conclusion is important because it's the things that you have total control over that are the area which are morally relevant for Epictetus. Right? That's why your knowledge is moral, because it's your knowledge that you actually have control over. Now, of course, the torturer can try to persuade you that 2 plus 2 isn't 4 using maths or something, but that's affecting your knowledge. It's still you that's your... But what he can't do is force you to believe it. Right? That, that's the thing. Now, if it turned out that your knowledge were something that could be externally influenced or undermined, whether by accident or by deliberate... It doesn't matter if it's a torture, it could just be fate as a whole, it doesn't matter. But if for the Stoics it turned out that external things could force you to have false beliefs without you knowing about it, 
the whole picture would crumble as far as the Stoics are concerned. And it would crumble precisely because getting right about, getting things right about the world, being right, would be a bit like being rich or being a bit like being healthy or being lucky. It would be the kinds of things that good Stoics were supposed to ignore, be indifferent towards. Okay, you happen to be right, but that's just because no one's come along and tortured you into being wrong yet. Or because you weren't, whatever, exposed to these external forces that made you wrong. <coughs> so I think it's worth noting, as I say, because Stoics are often appealed to in relation to Amalfati, that exactly where Epictetus won't go, right, which is the idea of false beliefs imposed on one, is exactly where Nietzsche starts. He's not. He's not in the Stoic line, because where he starts is with the fact that we're always going to be in error. There's nothing we can do about it, and it's not a matter of working out for ourselves the right answers. There's no amount of mental work that can go into that. We're still going to be wrong about the world in quite important ways. The question he asks right, is what next? So it starts exactly where the Stoics stop. Um, and yet... The basic Stoic problem, what are the areas of our life in which we can be active about? And what are the areas in our life about which we ought to be passive and serene or indifferent or whatever, stoical, if you like? Um, exactly that conflict is represented in miniature again in Nietzsche's version. Right? We find it still, he doesn't get over it. To think about why, I want to cast your mind back to the two examples we had in relation to art. One of them was the artist as the producer, right, this beautifier, the person who makes things beautiful. The other one was the art lover, the person listening to the music. Now, both of those things make sense, I'm suggesting, independently of one another. It per makes perfect sense to be the person who listens to the music and learns to love it. It makes perfect sense to be the artist producing this kind of thing in order to trick somebody else. It is kind of a trick when Nietzsche presents it. Right? Trick someone else into believing this thing is beautiful. But what he seems to be asking us to do with Amal Fati is to be both with respect to ourselves, like both the active producer of this deception and the passive, the, the lover, the person who is duped. And both of those things seem to need to belong in the same person in order for Amal Fati to be successful. And we might just want to ask, ultimately, and this is a question that he can't answer on, this, on the way I presented it, I mean, are we really a manipulator or are we really manipulated? And the answer he needs is both. But the trouble I have with this is it seems to me that either we're going to end up on the one hand like the scientists, the scientists are the ones who recognise the errors but find them extraordinarily excruciating, right? the, the fact that we're always in error, there are scientists, but they're not the good ones because they... Or we're going to end up, if we're successfully duped, like the lovers of reality. That's the mocking term he uses for people who take things to be as they seem to be. But what he needs us to be is exactly something in between. Right? Neither the manipulator nor the manipulated. And I don't think there's anything in Nietzsche at this point which enables us to work out how that's possible. Um, I say at this point because exactly this problem comes up in Nietzsche's first work, The Birth of Tragedy. In The Birth of Tragedy, though, there's this metaphysics underpinning it, or at least most people think there is, and it seems right to me. Um, namely, a kind of Schopenhauerian metaphysics where there is a certain kind of way of viewing the world which is as a spectator to the whole thing, right? not just as an individual in it. So in The Birth of Tragedy, individual Greeks going about their everyday life 
maybe have a certain kind of cognitive attitude towards the world. Then there's the universal sort of mode of looking at the world, which has a different attitude. And what art does is it connects up the individual with the universal. It enables... So in his example, right, he says, he says a battlefield or a picture of a battlefield might be very beautiful, but being a soldier on the battlefield is not beautiful. That's not how you're going to think about it. And you can't think about it as beautiful. Right? But what art is about is about taking a soldier and making a soldier see the world as though they're looking at the painting of the battlefield or as though they're watching the battlefield. Now that metaphysical structure is simply not available to Nietzsche in the gay science. He's cast it away. But the problem it was supposed to solve, I'm suggesting, is still there. And I want to end now with one final thought about this, one final kind of problem. So even if all of this were solved, even if those problems I've suggested kind of sorted out, um, we might still wonder whether what we've ended up with is something that we particularly want to endorse, right? even if this is something that's possible, even if this is something which is, you know, something which we don't have philosophical concerns about its stability and so on and so forth. And to think about why it might not be, I just want to cast your minds back to Adorno's point. Adorno's point is, look at these two captives, right? Do we really want to be the one who loves the bars of the cage? Or do we really want to be the one who imagines that he's free and happy and out there in the world? Do we want to be the lover of fate on the traditional model? Or do we want to be the wishful thinker? Now, on my reading, we're no longer the lover of fate. Right? We're definitely not somebody who loves the bars of the cage, or at least not all the bars of all the cages, if you see what I mean. And we might love one bar, but that's all. But I think we do look a little bit like the wishful thinker. After all, if the successful lover of faith is, as I'm suggesting, they're going to be somebody who, in some sense, is aware of a problem that there is in the world, but has forced him or herself to love that while still recognising it. So it's acceptance, but also love of this faith. And what I'm suggesting is that in avoiding some of the traditional problems associated with the one prisoner, it seems like maybe we've ended up with being the other. So if we don't prefer Amalfati's wishful thinking, I'm suggesting maybe what we've ended up with is wishful thinking after all. Thanks very much. Thank you very much, Tom. Okay, we have a few minutes break and we'll have a discussion. Thank you.